0: All right, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 31. That's where we're going to be this morning. Mark 14, 26 through 31. When I was in high school, there was a... Um, Saturday Night Live skit that me and my friends always kind of quoted back and forth each other because we thought it was funny. It was this guy named Stuart Smalley, and he would look in the mirror, uh, and he would talk about how he was good enough, how he was smart enough, and how much people liked him. And so the whole thing was him trying to do this whole positive affirmation, this whole uh, super encouraging, everything is great, everything is good, uh, even in the skit when things weren't so great or good. And the reason why I bring that up or start off with that is because there are a lot of people who view Christianity the same way. But the purpose of Christianity as a religion is for us to say, hey, uh, we are good people. And it's to build up our self esteem. It's to build up our self worth. And, and Christianity as a relationship is, or as a religion is all about this kind of rah rah mentality. In fact, there's several ways that we even see this throughout Christianity or throughout um, Christendom or kind of looking at Christianity as a whole where people have kind of taken different things and kind of tried to turn Christianity solely into kind of a a self-worth, you're good enough, you're great enough, let's make everyone happy, let's build to success, uh, God wants everyone to be successful type of religion. One of the best-selling books in the last probably 10 years, if not longer than that, Christian Books, uh, is a book by uh, Joel Osteen called Your Best Life Now. Now even getting outside of all the theological issues that Joel Osteen has, the message of the book is you can have experience your best life now, but... For Christians, the Bible tells us that our best life is, is yet to come. The Bible tells us to, to look towards heaven and to endure for God's, or for God's name and for God's glory what we go through on this earth. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't good things in this earth. That doesn't mean that there's good things that we don't enjoy and that we have with us. But our best life is yet to come. There are... Athletes and others who have taken Philippians 4.13. Uh, you can do all things through God who gives you strength. And that's kind of their mantra of, I can score this touchdown, I can make this shot, I can win this Super Bowl, I can win this championship because God has given me the strength. That's what God wants me to do. God wants me to be successful. When in reality, that verse is not about us being successful. It's about us being content even when we have nothing. We also have seen the latest Bachelorette. Now, I don't watch The Bachelorette, so uh, y'all don't worry about that. But uh, the latest Bachelorette, I've seen this in the news. That's the only way I know about this. Um, If I were a stand-up comedian, I would want Sam in the audience at every show. Uh, The the latest Bachelorette has come out in interviews, talked about that she can live a lifestyle that is... um, Immoral and and unethical and, and outside of God's standard, and God is okay with that because it makes her happy. And so there are some who have taken Christianity and kind of turned it into this kind of uh, rah rah, you're the greatest, you're the best. This is all about you. Uh, God just wants you to be successful. Type of religion. And what we're going to see as we look in this passage this morning is that's just not uh, not the case. We're going to look at a passage where Jesus tells his disciples, he doesn't tell them, hey, you're going to be successful, you are awesome. He tells them, hey, guys, you're about to fail. You're about to, to mess up big time. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus, uh, Judas has just left the 12 to go and um, betray Jesus, to go get the leader, say, hey, I know where Jesus is going to be. Let's go get him so y'all can kill him. This is hours before the crucifixion. And Jesus doesn't take his disciples and bring them around and give them this big rah-rah speech. In fact, Jesus says, look guys, you're about to hit the lowest point of your life. But also understand that as Jesus does that, he then follows it up with the greatest piece of hope that they will ever know. So let's look at Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 31. We'll read the passage, and then we'll um, pray, and then just make our way back through the passage. All right, so remember, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the, the Lord's Supper, how uh, God had or Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. This was, uh, once again, this is hours before the, um, uh, the crucifixion. And then in verse 26, it says, "...when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives." And they all said the same. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now and thank you for this time that you've given us. We thank you for your word. Father God, I thank you for the honesty of your word, but also the hope of your word. And God, I pray that as we look at your truth this morning, God, that we would be confronted uh, with the reality of our own struggles, our own weaknesses, our own sin and temptation, God. We would also come out um, focusing on uh, the hope that is offered through Jesus Christ. Uh, Father God, I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts, to our minds, God, to our souls, through your word, through the Holy Spirit, God, louder than my voice ever could. And God, that you would be glorified and and that we would be changed. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. All right. so the first thing that we see in verse 27 is that there is wisdom in understanding and admitting our sinfulness. So as they leave, they are making their way to the Mount of Olives. Jesus tells them, you will all fall away. Now, Jesus understands in a couple of hours, push is going to come to shove. Jesus understands in a couple of hours, maybe less than a couple of hours, maybe an hour, um, uh, Judas is going to come. He's going to give him that betrayer's kiss. And and the the soldiers are going to come, and they're going to arrest Jesus. Jesus knows that at this moment, the disciples are going to flee. They're going to run away. They're terrified for their own lives, and they flee, and they bolt. So Jesus does not give them this raw, raw, positive affirmation. Instead, He is very honest with them. He is very real with them. He is very genuine with them. Now understand, Jesus is not trying to depress them. Jesus is not trying to discourage them. Jesus is not trying to, to make them turn into Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh and walk around and say, "'Woe is me.'" But Jesus wants them to understand. The same thing that the Bible wants us to understand is that we are sinners. And no matter how good sometimes we think we are, no matter how strong we think we are, Peter says in the last verse, Look, if I've got to die, I'll die, but I'm not denying you. No matter how strong we think we are at times, we have to understand, and there is wisdom in this, in understanding that you and I are weak. We have weaknesses. We have temptations. We are not perfect. Paul the Apostle, Paul who planted churches all over uh, really where he was at, who planted all these new churches, who is responsible by God's grace and by God's leading to to really take Christianity out among the Gentiles or the non-Jews, to really see it spread. Paul says that he is the chief of sinners. Paul calls himself basically the worst of the worst. The Bible almost follows, or not almost, the Bible does follow suit. Romans 3.10 tells us that as it is written, none is righteous, no not one. There is none of us that can rightly stand before God. All of us have sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in 1 John 1:8, if we want to take this and say, hey, well, that's just talking about people who don't know Jesus, what about those who do? That's talking about both, but 1 John one eight. John is writing to believers. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And even though I don't have this verse up on the screen or on your sheet, two verses later in verse 10, he says, If we say we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar. All of us have sinned. And as human beings, as Christians... There is a wisdom to confessing or admitting or acknowledging that we are sinners. Two reasons why it's important to understand our sin and understand our weaknesses. One, our sin affects our relationship with God. In two ways, sin reflects or impacts or affects our relationship with God. The first is separation. Every human being is born separated from God. The Bible talks about how we've inherited the sin of Adam, but even if that wasn't the case, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short. We have all missed the mark. God's standard is perfection, and none of us, no matter how good or moral we might think that we are, or we might actually be, never going to measure up. Because of that, the Bible tells us that we are God's enemies, that God loved us when we were His enemies, but even though we were His enemies, separated from God. The Bible is clear that anyone who has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus, has not repented of their sins, has not surrendered control of their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, is separated from God. God's on over here, we're over here, and there's a chasm that there's no way we could ever possibly cross. So sin affects our relationship with God through separation. Sin also affects our relationship to God by damaging uh, our intimacy with Him. When we become Christians, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are made the children of God. We go from being enemies of God to being adopted into God's family and to become His sons and daughters. And that relationship, while we believe that the Bible tells that relationship will never be uh, torn, Jesus, uh, Jesus says there's no one that can take us from God's hand. There's, Romans tells us there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. While well, God will always love us if we allow sin to, uh, to rule in our life, if we allow sin to reign in our life, if we don't deal with our sin, wrestle with our sin, confess our sin, admit our sin as believers, then what sin does is it basically places up roadblocks in our relationship with God. It it impacts our intimacy with God. It impacts our ability to hear from God through His Word, uh, through sermons. It impacts our prayer life with God. It impacts our dependence on God. And so when we do not acknowledge our sinfulness, it has a huge impact on our relationship with God even as believers. The other way that sin impacts us or affects us, if we do not acknowledge it or confess it, it impacts our relationship with God, but it also affects our relationships with others. If sin is not dealt with between individuals... Whether it's lost person, and lost person, and lost person, and saved person, and saved person, and saved person. If sin is not dealt with between those individuals, then it breeds contempt. It breeds anger. It brings jealousy. It breeds bitterness. It does nothing good, but it does only brings destruction to those relationships. Have you ever been in a relationship, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with a, a coworker, someone you're dating? Um, hopefully if you have a spouse, you're not dating someone too. Um, that also breeds a lot of problems. Um, but but with, with relationships, and someone has wronged, one party has wronged the other party, and they don't admit it, and they don't confess it, that does not make that relationship stronger. When we first got married, I had a tough time admitting my faults to Jessica. When I did something wrong, most of our arguments then became, you never admit your faults, you think that you're perfect. And I would say, no, I don't. But at the same time, I would still never admit my faults. And so it took me a while for God to work in my life to bring me to that place where I recognize, okay, I've got to be humble. If this relationship has got to work, I've got to understand that I'm not nearly as perfect as I think that I am. Because if you don't, if you don't acknowledge that sin, if you don't acknowledge that, that, that wickedness, if you don't acknowledge that frailties and those mistakes, then it's not going to build a relationship. All it will do is destroy one. So there's much wisdom in acknowledging that we are sinners or that we have weaknesses that we have temptations, that we're not perfect. So what happens if we don't acknowledge our temptations? What happens if we don't? In this story, we become Peter. When we don't, or when we are not honest about our sin and temptation, it creates more damage. Look at verses 29 through 31. So Jesus has just told them, You're going to scatter, you're going to fall away. Peter says, Even though they all fall away, he's talking about the other 11 disciples. Look, Jesus, these other guys, they might run away. I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Now, Peter is emphatic. Peter is... There's no doubt in Peter's mind that he is not turning away from Jesus. Now... Think about Peter. Peter is considered the mouthpiece of the disciples. Uh, We saw back in Mark chapter 8, what we kind of considered to be the the turning point in this book, that Peter was the one that said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the book of John, when um, Jesus teaches some hard things and the crowds all leave, Jesus looks at the disciples, He says, are y'all going to leave too? Peter, Peter is the one who says, where would we go? You alone have the words of life. Peter is the one who uh, saw Jesus on the water, walking on the water, and desperately wanted to get to him and trusted him and walked on the water. Peter saw the miracles. Peter was uh, one of the three disciples that was there when he raised Jer- when Jesus raised Jairus' his daughter. Peter was right there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus kind of basically drops his human flesh, and you see the glory of God shining there. Peter was one of the three disciples that saw this. He saw things that no one else saw. He saw Jesus in a way that no one else did. He made proclamations about God or about Jesus Christ that no one else made. Peter thought in himself. Peter thought, surely all these other guys, they might fall. They haven't seen the things I've seen. They haven't said the things that I've said. But I'm not going anywhere. Jesus is the one that told him he would fall. He says, "Nah, not going to happen. When we do not acknowledge our sin, when we do not acknowledge our weaknesses, that pride, that pride that comes with that, builds more uh, steeper and farther fall for us. The other disciples, with the exception of John, John is the one disciple who stood with them, with Jesus, uh, uh, the other disciples, they run away. Peter doesn't just run away, but Peter publicly and vocally, loudly denies that he knows Jesus. He denies uh, who Jesus is. He even curses his name. Peter's fall was much farther than the rest of them because Peter's pride exalted him that much more. Because Peter refused to admit that he had faults. Peter refused to admit that he was a sinner. Peter refused to admit that that even the potential of falling away was possibly in his realm of experience. And here's the reality that we have to understand. There is no sin outside of our capabilities if we are not confessing and dealing with our sin. Understand, think of all the sins in the world. Think of anything that that can come to your mind that you would call a sin. Think of the worst sins that you can even imagine. There's nothing outside of our capabilities of sin that we could not do if it's not for us trusting in God, depending on God. Once sin takes control, sin wants to take us as far deep down that dark hole as it possibly can. Listen to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 12 and 13. It should be on your sheet and the screen. It says, Therefore, let not anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Therefore, I'm sorry, I think I misread that. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tempted out or beyond your ability. But with, uh, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, there's several things in that passage. One, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think that you are too big for sin, if you think that you are too big for failure, if you think that you are too big for uh, falling short, get ready. Be careful. Because once we think that we're too great, that we're too good, that we're too moral, and we begin to uh, loosen up our protective reins, and we begin to uh, let doors open that we typically wouldn't open in our life, and we're not protecting ourselves, we're not guarding ourselves, we're not depending on God, when we think that we're too big to fall, no one is too big to fall. That cliff is right in front of us. Not only that, but he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What he is saying here is every temptation that is available for mankind, that is common to man. Any temptation that you give into, any temptation that approaches you, is something that every person is prone to fall in given the right circumstances, given the right situations. But also understand that if we are believers, then God has a a plan and a purpose. God strengthens us. God encourages us. And if temptation comes our way, God always provides an out. God always provides a way for us to escape that temptation. And if we fall, if we do fall in temptation, God's grace always offers forgiveness. Now... Even as Christians, if we don't repent, if we don't fight against sin, it's possible for it to to pull us farther and farther away from God. There's a pastor that, that if you've seen him in the news at all in the past couple of weeks, his name is is Joshua Harris. About 20 years ago, he wrote a book, maybe longer than that, called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Hugely popular book among Christians that dealt with how Christians should date and all this other stuff. I never read it. Anyways... Um, He became incredibly popular. He was mentored by uh, uh, um, a very popular pastor. He he himself began to uh, pastor about uh, 10 years ago, a a megachurch, several thousand people. He quit over about a year, year and a half ago because he said he was going to go to seminary so that he could get a little bit more biblical knowledge and grounding. And here in the last week or two, he came out and said that he was divorcing his wife and that he was no longer a Christian. Now, I can almost guarantee you, I don't know Joshua Harris's life. I don't know what he's been wrestling with. I don't know what brought him to this decision. But I'd be willing to bet 10 years ago when he started pastoring that church, 20 years ago when he wrote that book, he never thought that he would be at a place where he was divorcing his wife and saying that I no longer am a Christian. I no longer believe that Jesus died for my sins. I no longer believe in forgiveness. But somewhere in that span of time, Whether it be a thought, whether it be an action, whether it be a lifestyle, whatever it was, he allowed sin begin to creep into his life. And it wasn't dealt with. It wasn't confessed. It wasn't admitted. It wasn't acknowledged. He did not repent of it. And that sin brought him to a completely different place than he ever thought that he would be at. I can't tell you how many pastors I've heard about or have known who have begun to counsel someone or build relationships in the church. And though they never would have thought about it five years ago or ten years ago, they find themselves in a place where they're having an affair, leaving their wife. I know of a guy whose wife was pregnant. He was counseling another pregnant lady and he leaves his pregnant wife to go start a family with this other woman. Because he dropped his guards, he thought that he was too big to fall, too big to fail. And so he did not act wisely. He did not admit his sinfulness. He did not admit his weaknesses. And it brought more and more destruction in his life. One of the first things I did when I came to the church is is I asked John to put in a window in my office door. Just so if it's ever closed, if anyone walks by... They can see anything that I'm doing, whether I'm in there with someone, if I'm by myself, everything is out in the open, so to speak. Because I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand that if I don't protect myself, if I don't guard myself, if I don't set up barriers, then there is no sin that can be put before me that at some point I could not give into if I'm not trusting in God and if I find myself deeper and deeper into sin, not acknowledging my sin or acknowledging my weaknesses. When we choose not to acknowledge our sin, it opens up our lives for more and more damage and destruction. Next, we see that victory over sin and temptation comes through the death of Jesus. Now, this is where we get into the positive. So Jesus kind of set the stage. You will all fall away. Jesus sets the stage. The hardest, most worst, uh, uh, most difficult, uh, uh, the, the, the blackest, the darkest part of your life is about to happen. You're going to reject me. You're going to run away. But understand that there's hope in there too. He says in verse 27 he says, "I will he quotes an Old Testament passage that says, "I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered." Now part of this is he's showing them that this is to uh, there's been prophecy made about this, this is going to fulfill that prophecy, but it also lays out the point of why they're being scattered, that Jesus is about to be struck. This idea here is that he's about to die for our sins, he's about to be hung on the cross, he's about to be beat. Uh, 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 almost beyond recognition with hands and with whips he's about to have a nail of uh, a crown of thorns nailed to his head he's going to be nailed to a cross and he will die he will be struck for you and for me We talked about how that sin separates us from God, and there's this giant chasm between God and us that we can never cross. And we can't, not by ourselves. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, His arms stretched out, He provides this bridge that we can go from where we're at to where God is, not because of us or our ingenuity or our goodness or our morality, but solely by who Jesus is and what He has done for us. Jesus is our only solution to our sin. We had VBS a couple of weeks ago, and um, really the biggest thing I guess that I do during VBS is on the night when the gospel is shared, uh, the kids fill out questionnaires, and those who have questions or those who want to talk about salvation. They come to my office, and just kind of one by one, we sit down and we talk about the gospel, about what it means uh, to be a sinner, what it means to... Why do we even need a Savior? And one of the points that, that, that I have to hammer home is Jesus is the only way. There is no other way to have our sins forgiven. And our sins are what condemn us. Our sins, the things that we have done, that's what condemns us. That's what brings judgment. That's what brings the wrath of God. The only way for those sins to be forgiven is through Jesus Christ. Because even being sorry in itself is not enough. Just being sorry and saying, well, I messed up. I'm sorry I did bad. That's not enough. We have to say, God, I'm sorry I failed. I need Jesus. I need His forgiveness. I need His grace. I need His righteousness because I can't do it on my own. That sin, if we don't acknowledge it, it builds those roadblocks. But if we do acknowledge it before God, if we do go to God and say, God, I've sinned, I've messed up, I need forgiveness, I need grace, it brings restoration. It brings restoration with God, both eternally, if you have... Um, If you're a Christian and there has come a time in your life where you said, you know what, I understand that I'm a sinner and I understand that I need my sins forgiven and I understand that the only way my sins are going to be forgiven are through Jesus Christ, so I'm going to go to God in prayer and I'm going to ask God that because of who Jesus is and what He has done for me, I'm going to ask that He forgives my sins. The Bible tells us that when we do that, our sins are forgiven, that all who call the name of the Lord will be saved And that forgiveness also for those who are uh, believers. So if you're not a believer, that's what forgiveness does. It brings about uh, forgiveness. It brings about that relationship. It creates that relationship with God. For believers, it restores intimacy with God. If we have given over to sin, if we have not been confessing it, if we have not been wrestling with it, if we have not been repenting of it, then when we finally do deal with our sin, when we finally do confess, when we finally do lay it before God and admit it is wrong, admit it is sinful, then that relationship with God is restored. All those roadblocks are knocked away. All of a sudden, we can hear from God again as we study and read His Word. All of a sudden, our prayer life feels more, more dynamic and we don't feel like our prayers are bouncing off walls because that, 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 those blocks that were blocking our intimacy with God are destroyed. Now, any time that we sin and we don't confess our sin, they begin to build back up again. That's why there's wisdom in confessing and understanding our sin. But not just with God, but if we want to fix relationships on this earth, there has to be confession. There has to be acknowledgement that, that, that somebody messed up. There has to be acknowledgement that, um, that I've messed up and I desperately need you to forgive me. Not long after i had gotten here, I think it was a few months, um, I'd gotten a call that, um, that Jerry Kirby's father had passed away. And because of my own foolishness, uh, I did not call them or, or say anything to them for several hours. It might have even been the next day. And my actions, my foolishness hurt Jerry. Rightfully so, justfully so. And it damaged our relationship. And I had to go to Jerry, and I had to apologize to Jerry uh, multiple times. Not that he didn't forgive me, but I apologized multiple times because I understood that what I did was wrong. What I did damaged our relationship. And if I would never have gone to him, if I would have lived in arrogance and pride and said, I don't need to apologize, I don't need to ask Jerry to forgive me, I don't need to tell him that I'm sorry, then our relationship would have probably never grown. But now... Me and Jerry have a great relationship. If he says anything different, he's getting old. So, but, <laughs> but I had to ask forgiveness, and he had to forgive me. Whenever someone asks us to forgive them, the reason why we're told to forgive as God forgave, or forgive as Jesus forgave, is there is a great responsibility on the one who forgives. Because you have to take the pain, you have to take the sadness, you have to take the hurt and choose to lay it aside so that you can forgive someone else. But for relationships to be restored, just like with God, with human beings, there has to be that confession. There has to be that repentance. There has to be that acknowledgement that I have done wrong. Then in verse 28, we see that Jesus offers hope. Verse 28, he says, But after I am raised up, that's talking about the resurrection, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus starts off telling them, look, you're going to fail. You're going to fall away. This is going to be rough. But understand, I'm going to get struck. I'm going to die. Then I'm going to rise up. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to come out of the tomb. And I'm offering you hope. I'm offering you grace. I'm offering you forgiveness if you trust in me. No matter our sin, God has promised forgiveness if we turn to Him. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now what I think is neat here is, is how this ties in with Peter. Remember, he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then here he says, and what Peter says is after this, but here he says, look, I'm going to get struck, I'm going to rise again, and then I will meet you in Galilee. The disciples, after Jesus was resurrected, they saw the empty tomb. They went back to kind of what they knew. They were fishermen, the majority of them, so they went back to fishing. They were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And so in John, we see the story where they're fishing, and Jesus comes up and tells them to cast their nets because they haven't caught anything. And all of a sudden, they've got so many fish, it's weighing down the boats. And then after they get back to shore, Jesus is sitting down with them over that fire, and they're cooking that fish. And Jesus three times looks at Peter and says, Do you love me? Shepherd my sheep. Watch over my sheep. Lead my sheep. And you have this great picture of God's grace. You have this great picture of God's forgiveness. Peter, Peter whose pride made him say, I will never reject you. I would rather die. Peter when when questioned, three times denied and cursed Jesus' name. And here's Jesus saying, look, I've died. I've resurrected. I'm back to you in Galilee. I'm offering you forgiveness. I'm offering you hope. Your greatest, your, your greatest fall, your darkest moment. I'm forgiving you of that. And I'm bringing you back into the fold. I'm bringing you into the family. Understand that God God's grace wipes away all of our sin. God's grace clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus so that as God looks at us, He sees us through the lens of the perfection of Jesus. He no longer sees my sinfulness. He no longer sees my faults. He no longer sees my weaknesses. He sees the perfection of His Son. I want to fight against my sin because of who He is. I want to fight against my sin because I want to be close to Him. I want to fight against my sin because of the cost that it took to have my sins forgiven. I want to fight against my sin because I know if I give into sin, it leads to darkness, destruction, and death. If I walk in righteousness, it leads to light and closeness with God and love among my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to acknowledge our sin. We have to be willing to acknowledge our sin because that is the only way we get to hope. Christianity is not just some rah rah, hey, go be successful, uh, everyone think that you're great or say that you're great type of religion. Christianity is about sinful people who desperately need a savior. Christianity is about people who are broken and beat up and on their way destined towards judgment from God in hell because we have sinned. And it's about a God who loved us so much that He sent His only Son to die on the cross for you and for me to show His love to the world that if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, that sin is gone, that sin is wiped away, and we are adopted into His family. Christianity is a religion for even those who are part of God's family. We still struggle and we still mess up. And it's a religion that is based so on the love and grace of God that even though He knows we're going to fall short, even though He knows we're still going to mess up, He still loves us and He still offers that forgiveness no matter how many times we fall. Thousands of times, millions of times, billions of times, His grace always forgives us. Every time we call, every time that we ask, He always forgives. Us. he always wipes us clean and he always says I'm always going to love you no matter what there are things in Christianity that encourage us there are things that benefit us there are things that, that motivate us but the basis of Christianity are desperate sinners who desperately need a savior and it's provided through Jesus Christ if you are in this room There's never been a time when you have repented of your sins where you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you turn to Jesus and ask for the forgiveness of your sins and you surrender the control of your life to Him. Let me encourage you and challenge you that that can be done today. That God's grace, God's arms are open wide, calling you to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whatever your past, whatever your sins, whether you are a good, moral, upstanding person who based on your own goodness still can't get to heaven or whether you are considered the bottom of the barrel, everyone needs God's grace. And God's grace is available if we will turn to Him. If you're a Christian in this room, if there has come a time when you've, uh, when you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've repented of your sin, and yet you find yourself over the last days or weeks or months, maybe even years, having these sins that have been weighing you down, these sins that you have not been confessing, whatever it might be, that's between you and God. I don't know. But I do know that God knows. And I do know that God is desiring you to confess, desiring you to repent, and desiring you to turn back to Him and say, I need you. Nothing Satan would rather do, since Satan cannot destroy that relationship, we are always held in God's hand. What Satan wants to do is to move us so far from God that we believe that He doesn't love us anymore, that we believe that we've messed up too much, that we believe that we have too many scars, that we've we've hurt Him too much that He would never accept us back. But just like the story of the prodigal son, that father, as he sits there waiting on the son to come, if we are God's children, God's forgiveness is always available. It is always on the table. It is never off the table. And all we have to do is go to God and confess our sin, repent of our sin, turn to Him, and that relationship is perfectly restored. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't. You do. And God does. God does. So we're about to have a time of response. I'm going to pray, then we're going to sing a song. During that time, if you need to um, if if you, say, you know what? I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I need to get that taken care of. I'm going to be standing down right up front. Come and talk to me. If we have more than one people, one person, we can get some of our Sunday school teachers and deacons to grab you, and they can tell you the exact same thing that I can. That Jesus Christ saves, and there's no other way to salvation. And He desperately wants you to turn to Him. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, you say, you know what, there's sin that I've been struggling with. I can pray with you, but what I would challenge you to do first, get on your knees before God. Bend the knees of your heart. Bend your physical knees at your chair up here at the altar and go to God and say, God, here's my sin. Here's where I've been failing. God, I need you to forgive me. And I need you to strengthen me. And I need you to help me. Here's my weaknesses. Here's my sin. Here's my temptation. Here's my frailties. Here's the way that I'm prone to sin and mess up. God, help me because I can't help myself. I promise you that if you call on the name of the Lord, God always hears. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. and Thank you for this time that you've given us. Father God, I thank you for the cross. I thank You for Jesus. God, I thank You that You've loved us more than we deserve to be loved. And Father God, I thank You that You have taken those who are Your enemies and Father God, made us Your children. Father God, I pray for everyone in this room. God, I don't know anyone's heart and mind, God, that's between You and them. But Father God, I pray right now that God, whether lost or saved, Father God, if we have not acknowledged our sin before You, God, that we would do that now. Whether we need to be saved because we're not Your child, or whether we're Your child and we've allowed sin to just kind of run um, crazy over our life. Father God, before You, we would admit our sinfulness. Before You, we would admit our faults. Before You, we would admit that we need forgiveness. That we're not perfect. And that we're not strong enough on our own. Father God, I pray, Lord, that you would remove any fear, any pride, any excuses that would keep anyone from turning to you this morning. And God, I pray that you would work and move in a mighty way that only you can do. So in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.